Thank you, Peter, for leading us in prayer this morning. Good morning. First Sunday of Advent. Already. First Sunday of Advent is... We spoke last week, didn't we, about the, the, the countdown to Christmas and... Um, I confess to being a bit of a bit of a Scrooge, but I do love Advent, and I love Advent especially because of the the themes of Advent. And today's theme is hope, and hope is is such a powerful thing. Now, just to begin with, let's just remind ourselves of the difference between the hope of the hope within the world and the hope within Scripture, because they're two slightly different things. So, at the moment, up until um, well, up until about 8 o'clock on Friday night, across the country there was hope. There was hope. Having destroyed the footballing powerhouse of Iran on Monday, there was hope that we were going to bring it home this time and we were going to win the World Cup. And then um, when we met the slightly stiffer opposition of the USA, um, that hope quickly evaporated and now it's all doom and gloom again. Often in the world, when we talk about hope, it's some sort of whimsical fancy, some sort of loosely founded desire that we'd like to see something happen. But it's not a truly, um, it's not a, a truly deep-seated belief. When the Bible talks about hope, it is a truly deep-seated belief. It is the faith that something is going to happen. There is no doubt. There is no room for doubt. It is not some whimsical fancy. It is absolute certainty. My hope is in Jesus. That doesn't mean, well, we'll, we'll wait and see. It would be nice if it happened, but <laughs> strong chance that it's, it's, all, it's all nonsense. No, no. When we say my hope is in Jesus, we're saying my faith, my heart, my belief, my everything is in Jesus. And so when we come to this first Sunday of Advent... We talk about hope. And of course, we, we look back and we remember the prophecies that were given hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And prophecy is, it, it means different things to different people. I found a, um, a, a one-line definition of prophecy in a book that I've been reading recently. It's a book by a guy called Joshua Searle. He's actually one of my lecturers at Spurgeon's College, um, called Theology After Christendom, which is a very grand title. Um, but this, this one line, the prophet sees the present in light of eternity and is able to perceive God's redemptive purposes in the world. So the prophet sees the present in light of eternity. And so what that means is that we have to be a bit careful because when we, when we um, read at Christmas time and at Advent, the very familiar prophecies, the words, that they, they're like Pavlov's dog um, with the bell ringing. We hear some of these prophecies and we immediately think, Christmas, that's what it means, that's what it's talking about, it's Christmas. Look, it's really obvious. It's, it's, it's talking about Christmas. We have to remember that actually hundreds of years before the, the first Christmas, before the, the, the original nativity, those words were given to someone. And those words were, 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 were shouted out. They were, they were shared. Not, not because the prophet was saying, in a few hundred years from now, when we're, when we're dead and buried and forgotten about, something's going to happen, and let me tell you what it... That wasn't it. 
the words of prophecy had a very, very poignant meaning for the original prophet and the, the audience that the original prophet had. So today, we're going we're gonna to have a look at a very familiar prophecy. So to begin with, as I say, hope, hope as, a, as a biblical as a biblical um, concept, is nothing insecure. We've got this verse from Hebrews. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's the writer of Hebrews talking about the hope that we find in Jesus. But we're going to jump back to Isaiah 7. Now, if you've got a Bible with you, or if you can find one in the back of the seats in front of you, or if you've got a phone or a tablet or some way of accessing Scripture, it would be great if you can turn to Isaiah chapter 7. It's sort of about halfway through the Bible. Um, Isaiah's a big book. Keep flicking through till you see the word Isaiah. Then chapter 7. And this chapter has got a lot of odd stuff in it. So we're going to take a look at this because midway through this chapter we come to the prophecy, the prophecy that Steve shared with us earlier, the words of Isaiah, which we often hear at Christmas time. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and he will be called Emmanuel. And we hear those words and we instantly think Christmas. That's, the, that's what it rings out to us. But there was another side to this prophecy. And to understand and appreciate fully this prophecy, to, to um, really enhance our understanding of it as a, as a Christmas prophecy, we also need to understand it as a prophecy at the time when it was given. So in Isaiah chapter 7, we read, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So what is going on there? Loads of different names, loads of different places. I haven't got a clue. What's going on? Right, well, what is going on there is the context is being set. And the context was this. At the time, Jerusalem, in the land of Judah, was under attack. The tribes of northern Israel, which is also called Ephraim, because the king of that area at the time um, was an Ephraimite, so it's referred to as Ephraim. So confusing in the passage, we have Israel, Ephraim, they're the same place. He's allied with the, the king of Aram. And now Aram was, um, it was in an area we now know as uh, Syria. Damascus was the key city. And we're going to look at a map. Next slide. I'm not sure if the clicker's working. but um, So on this slide up here, if you look at the, the pink bit in the middle, you can see a star. 
with the word Jerusalem under it. That's where Jerusalem is. And the pink bit is all the kingdom of Judah. So King Ahaz, that we've just read about here, he, that's his territory, the kingdom of Judah. You'll see there, there's two blue sections above it, the kingdom of Israel, also called Ephraim, and then just to the other side of it, kingdom of Aram, Damascus. And if you look at the top there, you can see a star with Damascus written next to it. So the blue areas had just tried to attack Jerusalem at the top of the pink area, and they had failed. But they were going to come back. And King Ahaz is thinking, this ain't good. We're going to be overrun. We can't hold out forever. They're going to surround Jerusalem, and they're going to hold us to sea, under siege until, until we have to surrender or die. So he's concerned. But there is another, there is another element considering all this. If you look right at the top of that map, right just before the map runs out, you can see words above Damascus called, which says Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrians were not people that you really wanted to pick a fight with. They were known for their cruelty. They were known for destroying enemies. You didn't negotiate with the Assyrians. You were either ruled by them or killed by them. That is the... That is, the only bit of the Assyrian Empire we see on that map. But if we go to the next slide, we can see... So you can see Jerusalem, and you can get an idea, then, of the size of the Assyrian Empire, which is the dark brown bit. So it was huge. It was absolutely huge. Assyria was a powerful force. They were a powerful force. And at the beginning of this passage... The reason that these two verses sort of set this slightly confusing political context is because it's important, and because this prophecy that we're going to come to later on, it, it, that's what it's about. In the present of the prophecy being given, this, this political context was important to understand. Now, we'll carry on with the passage. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shia Jashab, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the laundress field. If we can go to the next slide. So this is the upper pool. Um, it's an impression of what the upper pool may have looked like, so um, it's not a, not a photograph from Isaiah's day. Um, but why was King Ahaz there? Why is this significant? Well, this is significant because this is one of the key water supplies to Jerusalem. And if your city is going to be held under siege, the first thing you need to do is secure your water supplies because otherwise, if the water supplies are, are taken by the enemy, then firstly, the enemy's got a water supply, and secondly, you haven't. And if you haven't got a water supply, then your, your livestock, your, your people, you, 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 you very quickly suffer and die a pretty horrific death, or you're forced to surrender. And so it was really important, the king, when, he, when he's worrying about the threat of, of attack by Ephraim and Aram, or the wider Assyrian empire, he's thinking, what do I do? Someone's going to come for us eventually. One of these enemies eventually is going is to come for us. Jerusalem, we know, was a, a well-fortified city because it had already withstood the first attack. So the walls of Jerusalem had stood firm, but 
It was the vulnerable points, like the water sources, that Ahaz would have needed to make sure were properly defended if there was going to be a siege of the city. And so God says to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, one of God's chosen people, the people that God spoke through in the Old Testament, he says to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, take your son with you, and there's a reason for your son going. We'll come to that in a minute. Go out to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the laundress field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. We read that throughout scripture, don't we? When, when people meet a time of crisis, a time of great stress and anxiety, a time of, of attack, God is the voice of peace, the bringer of peace and calm. Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. I've never counted up in total, but I've heard it said before that 365 times in the Bible that appears the words, do not be afraid or fear not, once for every day. Because every day as we go through life, we face challenges, we face situations that, that actually carry, carry a lot of fear for us, carry threat, sometimes more than others. But the word of God says, do not be afraid. So long as we stick on his path, the path that he's prepared for us in life, do not be afraid. Because we have a hope that is absolutely anchored in Christ Jesus. So Isaiah goes and says this to King Ahaz. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's how God describes these two, these two massive forces, that, that one of which was, was bound to eventually attack Jerusalem. God describes them as two stubs of firewood. Don't worry about them. They're stubs of fire. They'll, they'll, they'll burn themselves out. Don't worry about it. Because sometimes we can become so obsessed in, in our, own, our own situation that we forget that God actually sees the whole bigger picture of the world of eternity. He knows the beginning and the end and everything in between. And so there is nothing that is going to worry him. Do not be concerned by these two smouldering stubs of firewood because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramallah. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let's invade Judah, let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. So God already knows their plans. God knows the plans of Ahaz's enemy. There's no need for, for Ahaz to be, to be fearful so long as he's faithful. And that's still true for us today. We don't need to fear if we have faith. God knows the plans before the plans are even thought up. He knows that they're threatening to invade. He knows they want to tear Jerusalem apart and divide it. They actually wanted to install a, a sort of a puppet king to, um, to appease the Assyrians. So there'd be a, um, the Assyrians would sort of be controlling Judah without having true control over it. They had this great big political scheme set up. But God knew. This is what the, the sovereign Lord says. So this is what the Sovereign Lord, the message that he'd given to Isaiah to give to Ahaz in his time of trouble, when he's terrified of these events taking place. The Sovereign Lord says, it will not take place. It will not 
happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, so the capital of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin, this king, this person who was subject to God's authority, whether he likes it or not. So don't be afraid of him, says God. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. So God says, look, as far as I'm concerned, there is no threat here. None of these people, none of these places carry any threat to me, and you're my chosen king for this time, so don't be afraid. Stick with me, keep faith in me, and you have no reason to fear any of this. It will be okay. It will be okay. Now, before we go on with this, let's just put ourselves in in Ahaz's position for a minute. Because we've all been there, haven't we, where we're facing a situation that, that doesn't look good. In fact, it looks pretty desperate. And we know, we know that we should our faith in God. We know that we should relax in him and just spend time praying. We know that we should give it all to him and ask that he will help us to to work a way through. We know that. But so often, so often, when the rubber hits the road, we just can't do it. We find ourselves praying a long time after the event because in the actual time when we needed, needed God the most, we've tried to do it all ourselves. We've tried to, to, to write the email before we've prayed into it. We've tried to have the conversation. We've tried to, to, to make the thing happen, make the thing work. We've tried to solve the crisis on our own. Because just like Ahaz, we're fallen people and we get it wrong. And it's so hard to remember that actually giving it to God is the best thing to do. It's counterintuitive. When, we, when we're in the middle of a crisis, when we stop and say, right, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take an hour here, or a day, or a week. I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna give this to God. I'm gonna ask him to, to, to show me the way. You suddenly feel like you're doing nothing. And we're told that in a crisis, don't do nothing, do something. We're told we solve it. Come on, solve it yourself. Go onto Amazon and buy the replacement or or Google the answer or watch a YouTube video. Do it yourself. Come on, you can make this work. But actually, if we stop and give it to God and pray, and then, by all means, do those things, God is with us in that. So God's given these words of absolute assurance. Absolute assurance to Ahaz. But it comes with just a little warning at the end. God's just told him, I don't care about these places and these people. None of them are going to stand against you. None of them are going to be successful. They're plotting and they're planning, but I'm with you, so don't worry about it. But then he says, at the end of verse 9, if if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So it comes with a warning. All this good stuff, all this assurance it comes with a very stark warning. If you don't stand firm in your faith, then you don't stand at all. You don't stand a chance. We jump on... Ah, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for keeping up, Bev. I was, uh, 
I've forgotten my slides momentarily. In verse 10, again, the Lord speaks to Ahaz, having just given this warning. He says, Ask, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, some of us might think, yeah, yeah, we're quite right. We shouldn't test God. We should trust in God. Yeah, I'm, I'm with him on that. But we shouldn't do that when God's just told us to do that very thing. God said to Ahaz, look, I know. I know the challenge that's standing before you. I know the responsibility you feel for all these people who could perish if there's a siege. I know the, 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 that you're looking at this through earthly eyes, and it seems absolutely ridiculous not to, to, to do something about, to try and find a solution. I'm telling you, trust in me. I know this is a big decision, so ask me for a sign. You need your faith strengthened, so ask me for a sign. Anything, from the deepest depths to the highest heights, ask for a sign that I will do it, and that will reinforce your faith, and you will go into this situation trusting in me, and it will be okay. But Ahaz hides behind the words... I will not put the law to the test. He says, I will not ask. He stubbornly refuses. God says, ask me for a sign. No, no, I don't want a sign. I don't want that reassurance that you're there. I don't, I don't want that. that so I, I, I've got, I'm forming a plan in my own mind and I'm liking it and we're going to go with this. And at that moment, everything changes. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you, house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Notice how the language has changed there. In verse 10, in verse 10, the Lord speaks to Ahaz. He says, ask the Lord your God for a sign. Your God. There's that relationship. I am your God. You are my people. It works both ways. But as soon as Ahaz has, has refused to do that, he said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Bang. There's a change. And in verse, verse 13, Isaiah says to, says to Ahaz, will you also try the patience of my God? It's gone from being, being, I am your God, to being, well, he's, he's actually, he's my God. He's not your God anymore. You've, you've turned your back. You've refused. You've walked away. You see, there are consequences to our actions. We talk about, about love and forgiveness, and of course that's, that's true, and it's wonderful, and Jesus died on a cross so that we can be reconciled to God. But make no mistake, there are consequences if we directly disobey God, if we don't turn to him, if we don't give things to him. We can't, expect, we can't turn around afterwards and say, well, where was God in all that? Well, did you ask him to be in it? Did you give it to him? Did you seek his guidance? Did you ask for a sign? Don't go and blame God at the end if you haven't involved him in the process all the way through. That's not the way to treat someone. That's not a relationship of love. And then we get to verse 14. We get to the prophecy. Isaiah carries on. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. That sign that you wouldn't ask for, that sign you refuse, well, tough. There will be a sign, and this is it. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and, he will, and we'll call him Emmanuel. 
So what does that prophecy mean? Well, that prophecy, first of all, when Isaiah speaks of, of what, this, what the NIV translates as a virgin, the, the, the words that the rings the alarm bells of Christmas because we think of the Virgin Mary, well, he's talking about a young woman of sexual maturity, pure, untouched. That's, that's what he's talking about. So a fresh start. He's talking about a fresh start. And out of this fresh start, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, think back at the start of the passage. God very clearly told Isaiah to take his son along to meet Ahaz. His son's name was Shear Jashub. And that translates as a remnant. A remnant. So, you see, even in, in God's instruction to Isaiah to take his son, he, he was, there was a reason for it. Isaiah was taking with him his son. The, the virgin will, will conceive and give birth to a son, the remnant. That will be the remnant of God's people. There'll be this fresh start. And out of this fresh start will be brought a remnant, a remnant of God's people. So all of this, Jerusalem, everything, that's, that's going to go. There's going to be a fresh start. And God will call him, that remnant, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And this remnant of God's people will leave behind to the Assyrians everything Ahaz and everything with him. This remnant will be taken forward and this remnant and this remnant alone will say, God with us. And so suddenly we see that this prophecy had a real poignancy when Isaiah first shared it. He wasn't, he wasn't predicting the future. He was speaking into the present. So, okay. Let's put it to the test. If our actions had consequences, let's see whether or not Ahaz's actions had consequences. What, what happened next? Well... If you'd like to turn with me to 2 Kings, chapter 16. In 2 Kings, chapter 16, starting at verse 7, we hear what happened. You see, Ahaz had a plan. He rejected God's plan and he stuck with his own plan. Because he had thought this through. He was a king. He, was a, he had a bit of political nous. And he thought, okay, I've, I've got a plan. Pretty good plan, I think. There's always a bigger fish, so I'm going to call on the bigger fish to protect me from my enemies. And we're told in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7, Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant. And your vassal. So he's no longer God's servant. He makes it absolutely clear. He nails his colors and the colors of Jerusalem to the mast. I am your servant. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. 
And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants and put resin to death. We've got another account. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. And then in verse 19, the Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. The king of Assyria came to him, but he gave him trouble instead of help. Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and from the officials and presented them to the king of Assyria, but that did not help him. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him, for he thought, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of Israel. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and cut them in pieces. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Assyrians. And God's people were taken into captivity. A remnant, a remnant stayed faithful. And out of that remnant, they grew. And so this prophecy was a very, very stark warning to a king faced with a very difficult decision. If you stay faithful to me, it'll be okay. I know you can't see it, but it will be okay. But if you don't, it won't. Simple as. And he decided to stick to his own plan rather than take God's advice. Because, of course, Jesus made it clear. Jesus said... In Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. No one can serve two masters. We cannot serve our own desires in life and God's plan for us. When we're faced with a, with a difficult situation, we have that very stark choice that Ahaz himself had. We can, either, we can either give it to God and trust in him, or we can say, I'm, 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 going, I'm going my own way. And God says, look, if you need to trust in me, if you're struggling with this, ask for a sign. How often do we pray when we're faced with difficulties and say, Lord, I don't know what to do, and you know in my heart, you know I'm struggling, I'm struggling to give this to you, so Father, please give me a sign. Because God does give signs. When I was still working up in a city and I was exploring a calling into ministry, it's a big decision. It has big implications for life. 
And Joe and I talked about it and we prayed together. And we prayed, Lord, if this is right, please give us a sign. And it was around this time of year that, that it happened. And we, we got a phone call the next day, I think it was, from someone who said, I've just been listening to, to um, one of Tom's sermons online and it just really hit me. I, th- I think he's going to be called into ministry. This was someone close to us, someone who loves us dearly, who wouldn't have wanted us to, to suddenly take this massive decision because there's a lot of insecurity that comes with it. But they said, no, this is, I just need to share this with you. And then, and then we, we saw a, a couple from the church and we shared with them. We said, look, can you pray about this? And the husband said, well, actually, I've been really feeding this for quite some time, but I didn't want to sort of put ideas in your head. And his wife looked to him and said, oh, you didn't tell me that. So have I. I've been, I've been really feeding this as well. And then the following week, we went to a, a, a Christmas party with some old school friends of ours, and, and we were seeing people that we hadn't seen for a long time, and on three separate occasions in that evening, different people, none of whom ever set foot in a church, unless it's a wedding or a funeral, said to me, do you reckon you're, you're going to leave the city at some point and go into, go into ministry? Because all you talk about is church. You, 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 it, really, it really got you, didn't it? It's, it's really in you. I can really see that happening. You clearly have a passion for it. These were people who would never, never have said that normally. It was so out of character. But it's because we prayed for a sign. God is living and active in the world around us. He has a plan for each and every one of us. And it's so easy to, to say that and then not really do anything about it. But I'd urge you, when you, when you face these decisions... Not a sign whether I have cornflakes or shreddies for breakfast. That's not what we're talking about. A sign that, which way should I take my life, Lord? What should I do? What do you want me to be or to do or to go? God answers prayer. He loves to talk to us. He loves to have that relationship with us. Because... We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You see, we are born out of that remnant of God's people. And so we can say, Emmanuel, God with us. In every situation that we're faced with, God with us. We can go out there into the world and we might lose our job tomorrow, but God is with us. We might suffer tragedy. We might suffer loss. We might suffer a a, a horrendous diagnosis. We might suffer, full stop. But in everything, God with us. And because of that, because Emmanuel, God with us, our hope is anchored in Jesus Not some whimsical fancy, but an absolute steadfast certainty that even in the deepest depths, Emmanuel, God with us. So as we begin this Advent season, let's just remember, God is with us. He has always been with us and he will always be there with us. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for your word and for the example it sets us in so many ways, for the, for the encouragement, for the direction, for the guidance that it gives us. And Father, we pray as we go into this Advent series, as we approach Christmas and as we hear scriptures which, um, which just ring that, those bells that immediately make us picture the nativity and everything, Father, when we're looking at prophecy, help us to, help us to try and learn the gravity of what it meant at the time it was given. Because so often we can learn so much more about the, the, the Christmas story through that. We can learn so much more about how you work, how you, how you love your people. Father, we thank you that you have never given up on your people. You have always kept that line of communication open. And so often when, when communication feels like it's failed, it's because, it's because we've let it fail. So Lord, we pray that you'll help us to improve our communication with you. Father, help us to be bold in asking for signs when we're faced with big decisions in life. Help us to have eyes that are open to seeing those signs, to interpreting them, noticing when you do things around us, when you're prompting us, when you're working in us and in those that we meet. Father, help us to be bold in our faith and help us to stand firm allowing ourselves to be anchored in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Lord, be with us as we prepare ourselves for this, the coming celebration, but be with us in this Advent period, we pray. Give us strength, give us peace, give us courage, and maintain our hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.
bless us as we leave this place, as we have our conversations and our coffee. And uh, just keep reminding us of the hope that is anchored in you, not a wishy-washy thing, but a certainty for us. Uh, our service is finished, um, but don't let it be the end of your time with us, because I do have a strong sense that some people um, would like some prayer. Don't be hesitant. We're going to sing another song as people leave and go to get coffee in either the main foyer or to our right. Um, but if you feel that God has been talking to you and you want to pray that through, there will be people at the front here who would love to do that. Okay, so God bless you and uh, keep you till we meet again next week.